Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10, which can be found on page 1113 in uh, our Pew Bibles. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. And God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, we pray that as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, that you would be at the forefront of our thinking. God, that you would be at the center of our hearts and our lives. God, that we would see ourselves um, in the middle of your story instead of seeing you on the edges of our story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it, Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Turn then to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. The theme of today, of course, being joy. The theme of the letter Philippians is joy even in the midst of suffering. And as he gets to the conclusion of his letter, Paul writes these words, Philippians 4, 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. 
I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God. That last verse, many of you know, um, is included in one of my personal pet peeves, where uh, that verse gets used and misused, uh, particularly in, excuse me, in athletics. And so I want to start there, and then we'll, we'll go to something of athletics that I actually quite appreciate. And so with Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Many of you know this is one of my pet peeves because that verse gets used to mean, well, I want to go win this game, or I want to score this many points, or I want to do, and you know what? The Bible says I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Um, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, another translation. But if you hear that in context, it's not saying you can go do whatever it is that you want to do, and God has got your back. <laughs> it, but it is saying you can make it through whatever God has brought you to, that he does have you in those things. And so it is a great verse, but it often gets misused. However, here's another, so that's one area where I think athletics, the sort of tradition of using that verse gets it wrong. However, in athletics, there's another tradition uh, when it comes to Christianity that I think gets it absolutely right. And that is not in relation to this verse, but it's in relation to how to handle a victory. And have you ever noticed that, uh, when someone who is a Christian has just won some athletic competition and they put the camera in their face and they put the microphone in front of them, one of the first things they say is somehow, you know, praising God, thanking God, you know, all goes to him, you know, all glory to God kind of thing. And the reporters are always like, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) That just seems weird to me. Here we were playing a sport. Everybody's having a good time. Now you got to bring God into it. Everything just got weird. And, uh, and that's sort of the take from the reporter's side. But I think that the athletes actually have it exactly right. That this is a moment in their lives where they are getting to live out one of the things that we understand as Christians, that it all comes from God. Everything comes, it's all gift. And yes, we work with the gifts he's given to us, but even that it's all the gift of God. And that when uh, we do well and when we don't do well, we still are looking to God in all things. And so uh, anytime that we get an award, anytime that we get presented a trophy, (laughs) anytime we are being honored or praised, the correct response of the Christian is to take that and pass that right on to God. Not that I would get the glory, that he would get the glory. And so that's where I think they get it exactly right. And we're going to look today at uh, another section in Luke chapter 1. It's where we've been through Advent so far. It's where we're going to continue to be. And we're going to look at some other people who get it right in that same way. That <laughs> We would also know better how to respond. That's what we're looking at in all of Advent is how is it that we respond 
uh, to the promises of God. And so we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 1. That's Colossians. Hang on. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. Excuse me. And we're looking at Mary, not when she's talking with the angel Gabriel, but afterwards. And how it is she responds after hearing from the angel. And uh, we saw last week that he gives her this amazing promise, and here she is, somebody who seems to be the most overlooked uh, category of person in that time and in that place, and yet God comes to her and says, you are the one that I'm going to use to bring my Savior into the world, the one who's going to be uh, the Savior for everyone. So we looked at that last week. Now, how does she respond? How did she respond then? Immediately, her saying is, uh, how will this be? And then she goes on to say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And that's where we left it. And the angel leads her. So then what does she do? That's where we go from here. So verse 39. So at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. We need to pause. If we're going to understand where she's going. Who are these people that she's just going to stay with? Zechariah and Elizabeth. Have we heard their names before? We have. Earlier in Luke 1, this is how the whole thing begins. As Luke tells this story, he begins with a person by the name of Zechariah who was a priest who has been serving in the temple. And the angel Gabriel had come to him in the temple and said, your wife is going to have a baby. And he isn't sure he believes that yet. And so right now he can't talk. <laughs> And so uh, we're not going to see him say anything today. (laughs) He's still in that period of not being able to talk until his son is born. But his wife, uh, Elizabeth, is pregnant. And actually, she was too old uh, to have a baby, and yet that's one of the things that the angel had told uh, to Mary. He said that this would be a sign to to Mary. He said, even Elizabeth... Your relative is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So this is when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Mary's response to hearing the word of God is, okay, that's going to happen. And you told me that this is one of the things that I'm supposed to to see. I'm going to go see it. I'm going to go see Elizabeth, and we're going to see what's going on here. And sure enough, Elizabeth is pregnant. She's six months pregnant, we are already seeing that what God has said is happening. So uh, Mary gets there. She greets Elizabeth. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. There are several strange things that happen here. Let me just point out a couple. 
you probably all noticed that the baby leapt in her womb. And when uh, Mary shows up, and you're like, that's odd. But there's actually something else that's even odder that maybe you didn't notice. That is in verse 41. It says, uh, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. You may notice that the first time through. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something we traditionally look at, you know, on Pentecost. That comes a long time later, though. And it's uh, something we see throughout the book of Acts, people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Something Paul writes in his letters about. But here we're seeing it even before Jesus is born, that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's something we're going to see, actually, we see that in the whole family in Luke chapter 1. We saw it earlier when the angel Gabriel was talking to Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, talking about the baby that she was going to have, and actually says, um, (laughs) verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Isn't that odd? And then as we go into what we're going to look at next week, so we'll have to wait there, we see Zechariah, verse 67, verse Uh, His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So here we have Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, even before he's born, all being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important to note that that is the way that the story is told because there are things that we learn about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit that will help protect us from all the strange teachings there are today about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things I want you to see in this is for all three of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, what do they do? They point people to Jesus. They point people to God. That is what the Holy Spirit is enabling them to do, is to point people to God. They're not pointing people to themselves. They're pointing people to God and what he is doing, especially in and through Jesus. And we even see that with John the Baptist before he's born. Mary shows up already pregnant with Jesus, and John the Baptist is like, hey, (laughs) over there, (laughs) there he is. And Elizabeth, oh my goodness. And, uh, And there we have it. And so she goes into the same thing, is proclaiming, uh, blessed is Mary and the child. She has believed the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. It all goes back to that. What God has promised, and that's what she's believed. We saw this last week. Mention it again. When, uh, when Jesus' mother and brothers are outside, and they say, oh, your mother and brothers, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? It's whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brothers. When somebody else calls out to him later and says, blessed is your mother who gave you birth, and he says, no, no, no. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That was what was special about Mary. She heard the word of God and she believed, she obeyed. And he said, the same is true for you. When you hear the word of God and you believe it and you obey it, that is when you are blessed. Um, and that is what Elizabeth is saying here as well. Now, you've got to put yourself in Mary's shoes just for a second. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. She has been this nobody in the eyes of the world. And the angel shows up and talks to her and says, not only are you somebody who is not a nobody in the eyes of God, but God has chosen you for a very special 
task, a very special mission. Okay, that's, that's good. And then she goes on from there, and she sees Elizabeth, who is actually pregnant, just like the angel said. That is good. And you hear the things that Elizabeth is saying about her, and th- this, is, this is good. And as she kind of takes all of this in, how does she respond? She responds with an amazing bit of poetry that is based on some of the poems from the Old Testament, especially the prayer of Hannah from 1 Samuel, but on a lot of the things going on throughout history. But the way that she talks about this is she just sort of explodes in song or in praise of God for who he is and how he has worked with her and how he works in the world in general. So I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to tell you four things about this uh, that will help us in our responses to everything as well. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And that, that timing, if you do some simple math, how pregnant was Elizabeth when Mary went there? Six months. Mary stayed about how long? Three months. Six plus three is... Nine months. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> those of you who know some biology, nodding your heads at that math. Okay. Um, where we're going, though, is looking specifically at what it is that Mary says here. Her soul glorifying the Lord. Now, I got to thinking, as I was looking at this, that Mary talks, it seems to me, that she talks more about God than she talks about herself. That's just sort of at first glance. I don't know if you caught that as you're reading through, but I decided, well, maybe I ought to count it up and see if I got that right or not. And so I start counting up to see, does she talk more about herself, more about God? And I don't have an accurate number of either of those because you get pronouns in there and did you count that or not count that? I don't know. But it doesn't matter because what I discovered is much more interesting than any number count. And that is that Mary starts by saying, "Ah, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now in all uh, generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Right? So you have her focusing on who God is and how he is working with her specifically, what she has seen already in her life of God at work. That's where she begins. But that's not where she ends. What is really interesting is she stops talking about herself. She starts by talking about what God is doing in her life. But it's like in the middle of this, she loses herself in the greatness of God and who he is and what he's doing in the world. If you hear nothing else today, hear that. She starts with what he's doing in her life, and then she loses herself in praise of who he is and what he's doing in the world. This should be our response. 
Now let's go through it in a little bit more detail in how that works. She starts exactly there with what uh, God is doing in and through her and how she has seen that this God who's <laughs> working out his purposes in her life has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She gets it that from the world's point of view, she is a nobody. And yet she looks at this God who says, your ways are not my ways, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. If we were doing this, we wouldn't pick a Mary. We wouldn't have Jesus come as a baby. We wouldn't have him be from Nazareth or be born in Bethlehem. We would do things differently, but God's ways aren't like our ways. But God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. And Mary gets that, and she says, you have noticed me, and you have chosen me for this, uh, for this purpose. And that is amazing, and that is worthy of praise. Uh, the mighty one has done great things for me. She goes on to praise just who he is in general, what he's like. The mighty one has done great things. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds, so he's mighty and he's holy and he's merciful. She's just praising who God is and what he's like. And then she goes into the way that he has worked throughout, the pattern of the way he works throughout history. I'm going to go into some of these. Where he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but lifted up the humble. Now think about this. Can you think of any examples from the whole Old Testament of times where God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts or where he has brought down rulers from their thrones but lifted up the humble? On almost every page of the Old Testament, it's one or the other going on. Either he's bringing down those who are proud and uh, removing the rulers from their thrones, or he's lifting up somebody who is humble. And it's easy to think of certain examples, like you look to Pharaoh of Egypt, right? Who is, I've got this. It's all in my power. It's all in my control. And God says, nope, it's not. And then you have somebody uh, like Gideon in the book of Judges, who is uh, hiding from the Midianites. And God comes to him and says, Greetings, mighty warrior. What? No. <laughs> no, no. And God raises him up to lead the people of Israel. We see this over and over again, but we don't just see it in, you know, well, this person was like that and the other person is like this. We see this even within the lives of individuals. And so you take somebody like Joseph in uh, the end of Genesis, and he starts off as an arrogant, proud teenager, and God humbles him. And he goes into a pit, and then from the pit to being sold into slavery in Egypt, and then being falsely accused and ending up in prison. And so now he's as about as low as you can go, where he is away from his home, he's away from his family, he's away from everything that he's ever known, and instead he is in prison on false charges in a foreign land. And it's there he's humbled. To the point that when Pharaoh later has a dream, he calls him up and says, hey, I had this dream, and I understand that you can interpret it for me. And Joseph says, no, I can't. I can't. But God can. I go, ah, okay. Okay. 
And now that Joseph has been humbled, where he sees that he can't, but that God can, and God says that now we're going to raise you up. And so in the life of this one person, we see that he does both things. When, when Joseph is proud, God humbles him. When Joseph is humbled, God raises him up. We see this over and over again in the lives of lots of people. Uh, Moses is another one. I'm not going to tell the whole story. Another one, Daniel chapter 4. Had we the time, I would really like to read the whole thing to you. Go read Daniel chapter 4. It is not just about uh, God doing this in the lives of his people of Israel. This is even of Nebuchadnezzar, who is a, a king over Babylon, like the archetype of evil kingdoms in the whole Bible, and the king of this evil kingdom, and God does the same thing with him, humbling him, and then uh, bringing him back up. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, Mary says. This is the way God works. This should be both a challenge to us and an encouragement to us, depending on where we find ourselves. But be careful. Uh, if you start looking at yourself and saying, am I humble enough? Am I, am I humble? Am I, be, I think I'm being pretty humble. Yeah, I'm good. I'm humble. That is not humility. Um, so be careful. It's been said that humility, true humility, is not, it's not thinking less of yourself. I'm a terrible person. I know I'm a It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. This is what we see with Mary as she's looking to God and praising him for who he is. It's her losing herself in his greatness. That's humility. So if you're looking to yourself to see if you're humble, you're not. <laughs> Look to God. Praise him for who he is. There you go. Um. She goes on. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now we're going to move into the New Testament because this is something where she's looking back. She's looking at how God has worked in the past and the pattern that he's had. But we've also seen that Jesus said, I'm not doing anything that I don't see my father doing. This is the way that Jesus works is to continue the pattern that God the Father has been doing from all time, but doing it locally and in an observable way for everybody to see. Can you think of a time when Jesus filled the hungry with good things? There are several times, but come on. There's one that just must spring to mind. The feeding of 5,000, right? When you have a bunch of people that are out there and the disciples are like, we can't do this. We've got to send them away that they can get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You feed them. You give them something to eat. And so he takes what they have, the, the bread and the fish, just a few things there. He gives thanks. He breaks them, gives them disciples. Disciples give them to the people. And it doesn't say that then the people, you know, that, that tied them over till they could get a good meal. <laughs> it didn't. It was more than enough. Everybody ate until they had enough, until they were full, till they were satisfied, and there were baskets upon baskets left over. He fills, as Mary says, he's filled the hungry with good things. And beyond that, Jesus, this is a sign of something beyond that, where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For those who are hungry and thirsty to be in a right relationship with God, in a right relationship with each other. Do you hunger for that? 
Is that something you long for the same way that when your stomach doesn't have it, it, it doesn't have food, it starts growling because it wants the food? <laughs> Do you have in your soul this growling when you're not right with God and we're not right with other people that you want that so badly? Jesus says, then you're blessed. You're blessed when you have that because you will be filled. That's what I come to give. That's what I come to bring is that rightness between you and God and between you and other people in all creation. He has filled the hungry with good things, it says, but he has sent the rich away empty. You think of a time when Jesus sent the rich away empty? There ought to be one example that springs to mind there as well. The rich young man who comes to Jesus says, what good, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And going over the Ten Commandments, the guy says, yeah, I've done all that. And Jesus says, there's one thing you still lack. Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, then come follow me. And the guy says, I can't do that. And he goes away sad. And sometimes we look at that and we say, oh, so Jesus is telling everybody they have to sell all their things and nobody's supposed to have any money. Is that, that's what he's saying, right? No, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is, I have to be first in your life. If money is first in your life, then that means I'm not first in your life. And as long as I'm not first in your life, this isn't going to work. And so here's a way we can tell. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what to do with your money. And if I tell you what to do with your money, and you say, okay, then that's what I'm going to do with my money, then that means Jesus has first place. But if he says, I'm going to tell you what to do with your money, and you say, no, that's my money, then Jesus doesn't have first place. That's why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, that's why he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, of course, say, well, who then can be saved? He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This man goes away from Jesus, empty. Because Jesus rejected him? No. Because Jesus didn't have first place in his life. And the same is true for us, but this is what uh, Mary is talking about, the same kind of idea. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So she's praised God for what he's done for her. He's praised God for who he is in general. Now she's praised him for the way that he works and the pattern with which he does all things. And she finishes by talking about his faithfulness. How he has promised these things in the past and he is faithful to complete it. This is uh, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. She goes all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and goes back to the promises that God made there. And she says, I can see even now that he is doing what he said he was going to do because God is faithful to keep his promises. Now, in all of this, there is a, um, there's a word that ought to come through loud and clear, and that is uh, the word joy. 
That is our theme for the day, and that is what Mary is just exploding with, is joy. As she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I would put it to you that if you're looking for joy, you're not going to find it in the things the world has to offer. If you're looking for joy, you're going to find it in God, in who he is, and what he is doing in you and through you in the world, and most especially what he's done and is doing and will do in the person of Jesus. This is where joy comes in. It's when we, in humility, lose ourselves in his story. When he takes center stage, when when Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord, it's basically like, he's on the stage and I'm shining the spotlight on him. I want everybody to see how great he is. When we take the stage and try to put the spotlight on us, it's anxiety, (laughs) it's worry, it's depression, it's despair, it's loneliness, it's isolation, it's fear. But when we let him take center stage and we shine the spotlight on him, we rejoice in God our Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.